From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm your host, Molly Kaplan. We made it to February, and this month, in honor of Black History Month, we'll be featuring a slew of incredible Black leaders who are tackling issues that impact our communities. This week, we're speaking with Garrett Bradley, a filmmaker passionate about criminal justice reform. The documentary film called Time, streaming on Amazon Prime right now, is at its core a story of enduring love, both romantic and familial. It's also a film about mass incarceration. The film follows Sybil Fox Richardson as she raises her six children, works as the owner of a car dealership, and relentlessly fights for her husband's release from a Louisiana prison. The film's original footage is interspersed with home videos that Fox made for her husband during his 21 years in prison. Today, we're joined by the director of Time, Garrett Bradley. The film, her first nonfiction feature, won Garrett the 2020 Sundance Film Festival's Best Director Award for U.S. Documentary. Garrett, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. So in the film, you map the lives of Fox and her children and her husband, Rob, over the two decades that he was in prison. And what's really striking is that you don't present their story in chronological order. You go from the children as little babies to them as men with mustaches and then back again. And the same goes for Fox and Rob. There are no timestamps or markers to orient people in a date. Chronology is held really, really loosely in hand. And since the film is about incarceration and its lived effects, did your presentation of time and of memory say something about the incarceration system as a whole? Wow. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I think the first way I kind of want to answer that really thoughtful question is from a cinematic space, because I think as a filmmaker, when you watch quote-unquote traditional films, they're actually relatively abstract in terms of their relationship to time. Like, if you think about, like, a blockbuster film, it's like, could you tell me on average... Did this film take place in a day, in an hour, in a week, in a month? So it's actually not really that literal. And and I think, as you said, is a more direct replica of the way in which we experience life. And it was important for me and Gabe Rhodes, who cut the film, to try to think about how the film itself could try to mimic the way in which the family truly moved through the world, but also as human beings, us universally, our relationship to all the tenses of time, which is that memories, when we remember something, it becomes present. Our bodies don't actually make a distinction between any of those tenses, right? And so how could we think about archive? How could we think about the past and the present and the future as being something that is collapsed, something that surpasses all time and space? I think Fox and her family certainly were living every day in a place of manifesting, which is also something that lives outside of any kind of chronology or um, anything that's rooted to a clock. I'm wondering if there was almost like a repossessing of the concept of time and also just time used as a weapon by the incarceration system, if that was a consideration like coming back to the idea of time in a repossessing way. Absolutely, yeah. I think I struggled a lot with what to call the film. I think titles are 
the worst part of the process for me. I, really? And everyone else. I just dread it, man, because yeah, it's requiring you to sort of make something definitive and to sort of force something to make something fix. And you're right. The thing, the thing I liked about the word time was not only was it a huge part of the story and their lives and of history as a whole, but it didn't necessarily elicit an image for me. Time is relative to a certain extent. It is also a weapon. I mean, I think it's a tool that's certainly being used in America every day with 2.3 million American families. You mentioned how time had no image associations that came to mind. And that seems interesting because in some ways the the 2.3 million people who are behind bars have very little access to being imagined. And so the idea of coming at it through time is an interesting one. And I think also that time is stolen. And that's a huge theme and obviously directly connected to incarceration, that time has become this weapon to take somebody's life like that. Right. I mean, time is the weapon. It's also, I mean, I think that in terms of image making, and that's something that really came to light for me, I think, over the summer, actually, in witnessing the protests that were happening across the country and thinking about how this was sort of an extension of what Emmett Till's mother was doing, which was using optics, using imagery as a form of accountability for these white supremacist systems that exist that we live under. And for me, it actually just further illuminated, I think to your point, this lack of imagery, the lack of evidence for the prison industrial complex. When we think about abstraction even, I think it's hard for people to fathom what 2.3 million people look like. And in fact, it's not even 2.3, it's double, triple, quadruple that number if you take into account those that are affected. And those that are affected on the outside, the family, are in many cases the only evidence of those that are on the inside. So I think that is also why it was really important for me that while time is a theme, the focus of love and the focus of the family unit is so crucial in trying to prove what's happening in our country. And you mentioned the idea of coming in this through love and through the family. And another huge theme of the film is the quotidian and the mundane. And I was curious, the scenes of the film don't advance through these big events and plot moments. They're more of a a collage of these small but really deep moments, ironing a shirt, putting on makeup, driving in a car. And we sometimes aren't even sure where Fox and her sons are going or what comes next. What was the importance of not just reflecting the everyday, but also the repetition? There is so much repetition. And I was curious why you went that route. I think when you're making documentaries, part of why I love them is that it's really about honoring the present moment, knowing how to honor the present moment, because you don't have control over anything at all. <laughs> and so you also need to find, I think, within that certain anchor points, certain things that are going to, you know, I had to ask myself every day, okay, if I have to stop filming tomorrow, what will I have said with the footage that I have, right? And that boils back to this question of intention. Why am I even making this film? And is it in alignment with the people that I am making it with? And so for me, that starts always with a series of conversations. And I had that conversation with Fox and Rob and with Robert. You know, it's really important that he have agency 
in the process, even though he wasn't physically with us. And they said, you know, our reason for wanting to make this film is our story is the story of 2.3 million other American families, and we think it can offer hope. And I think it was my job then as a filmmaker to say, okay, well, what does hope look like in cinematic space? What does hope look like for them in their life on the daily? And that was my anchoring point every day that I was shooting, was how can I show hope every day in their life? And how can I also show that the system sort of unequivocally embeds itself in everyday life, into the routine and ritual of their lives? And so my camera was very focused, as you said, on those quotidian sort of mundane, everyday things. I wasn't even aware that archive existed. I had no idea that Fox had an archive. And so when I said, okay, Fox, we're done filming. And, you know, with the doc, you... Sometimes you have to stop filming because of budget, because of schedule or your timeline. And we had to stop. And I remember saying, I'll be back in a few months and I'll show you what I have. And that's when she handed me what ended up being 100 hours of her home archive. So what you're seeing, to your point, is both the quotidian and also the history. It's also the full circle. And that's both of these two things merging together, which I initially, truthfully, had not anticipated. I'm so curious, as I was preparing for this, the question that was absolutely burning and has taken me so much restraint not to just start off with was, why do you think that Fox didn't tell you about the archive sooner? Because as you said, it was the last day of shooting and here was like 100 hours, 19 years of footage. Why do you think that you found out about it so late? <laughs> no one has asked that question. I know, I really searched. Like, I listened question. to all the podcasts. I was like, why is nobody <laughs> asking this question? It's a great question. I mean, I'd have to ask her. Just guessing. I mean, I think putting myself in her shoes takes a lot of trust to, even though it's an equal partnership in my mind, you establish intention, you have transparency, everyone's going in on it together when you're making a film together. But that trust could change in a second. And so on some level, I think it makes sense to me that she would wait. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure that I feel like I might have done the same thing if I were her. What was really interesting to me, just knowing that backstory, was that the footage that Fox had shot in some ways had a lot of similarities with the footage that you were shooting, even though you didn't know about that footage. Like some of the angles repeated and even little things like these really quiet moments were captured it's almost journal-like. And yeah, I'm wondering what the experience when you and Gabe Rhodes, the editor, started to unpack this footage, what it was like to see that the story had started before you were filming and been <laughs> documented before you were filming. What was that like? Yeah, I mean, I think to your point, yeah, there are these incredibly cosmic moments just throughout this project that I could have never anticipated or explained. And I think that it was someone having their own family archive means a lot of things, specifically in a Black American context, where oftentimes it is the only evidence of ourselves as we see ourselves. I think for Fox, it was a form of therapy. And it was also, in my mind, sort of this radical takeover or sort of reclaiming of what a wholesome family is, of what the American dream looks like. I wanted to bring up that the carceral system is a really big character in time, but you barely name it. You really put so much trust 
into the audience. You know, there are mentions of mass incarceration and abolition and prison as modern-day slavery. They're sort of scattered like little crumbs here and there, but not fully explained. You never resort the infamous text card or like markers of time. And I was curious, how did you decide how much to explain and how much to let the audience infer from the lives that they were witnessing? Yeah, well... I think there's two ways of answering that question. I should start off by saying that um, I'm making films to be in conversation with other films. I never make anything with the assumption that it is the only thing that it exists in the world, right? And so I think about that as something that is liberating and something that helps us to create as many different entry points into sometimes the same issue, which is really important because we're different people. We have different paths that we need in order to understand sometimes the same thing. And so I feel like time really stands on the shoulders of a film like 13th. I think if someone were to watch those two films together, they would get a very full picture of what we're talking about when we refer to the prison industrial complex in America and how that affects families and entire nations. And 13, for those who don't know, is the Ava DuVernay documentary about the 13th Amendment. Right. And so, and I think that's important as filmmakers. Like I am telling this story the way I know how to and in the best way that I can as a filmmaker, not within some kind of parameter that I think I'm supposed to be telling it in. And some people might watch it and say, but I have so many questions about the legal system and about the history, like, why is this such a big deal? And what do you mean that the prison industrial complex is connected to slavery? Go watch 13th. I mean, I think for me, I'm interested in creating a sort of Genesis story or sort of a backstory to it. Felt to me that it would, I think a better way of rephrasing this is to say that the film is not building a case for innocence. It's not trying to say that what happened was right. The film is about the repercussions of something that was done. And it's asking people to question, is it worth it? Is what we're seeing and the effects that this has on a family worth it? And how do they themselves move through every day with the consequences of their actions? You know, and how does love and individuality and unity holding a family together over the course of 21 years, how do we think about those everyday forms of resistance as universal experiences for American people? And if we can understand that, then we can actually have a better sense of where we are right now in our nation and hopefully create change in that way. It's interesting to think about the question of whether this was worth it or whether this incarceration system is working because there's a really poignant scene that for me was an example of some of what we in the sort of activist space know as restorative justice, where Fox is in her church and is talking about apologizing, but a deep apologizing for those who, to those who were in the bank the day that she and Robert robbed it, and then how she apologized to her family and to her church community and really pleaded for forgiveness. And what struck me about that was that Fox, because she was not in prison, had this opportunity not just 
for this notion of restorative justice where people with a stake in a particular offense sort of decide together how to repair. And that she wasn't just given the opportunity for that moment, but her family was, and the people who were in the bank the day it was robbed had all these opportunities. And what made me really sad is that Rob was not getting any of those opportunities, nor were the people who were affected by his actions while he was incarcerated. And I was curious if you spend a lot of time with that scene, if that scene was important as a sort of demonstration of what wasn't happening for Robert. Right. It's funny. I mean, I kind of interpreted that moment as being something that was a real turning point for Fox in her personal evolution. And I think part of the beauty is that both her and Robert evolved together. Of course, as you're saying, we don't necessarily have evidence of that with Robert, right? Because he's become, according to the system, an invisible person. But that isn't to say that he isn't growing and evolving and moving forward in the same way that she was on the outside. The point is, is that we have the privilege of sight with Fox. And so I think the reason why it was important to be there was I just feel like it's a new chapter in her life and in the film of finding her voice and using it. Did you ever have a conversation with Fox about that moment and why it was a pivotal moment? No, actually, because I feel like I got it. Yeah, because you were there. <laughs> I was like, copy that. Yeah. yeah you know? Yeah. No, no, we didn't. Both Time and its sister film, the 2017 film Alone about Alone, who's deciding whether or not to marry someone who's incarcerated, illustrate like this deep reverence and tenderness for the inner lives of Black women and their families. And in some sense, they're feminist portraits. And your work sort of forces viewers to grapple with the reality that incarceration touches countless lives, but particularly those of Black women. And I'm wondering, how are Black women's stories critical to the sort of discourse, the larger discourse around mass incarceration? I mean, they can't be separated from the conversation of mass incarceration. I think that the systemic separation of black and brown families is a part of American history since the inception of the new world. You know, after we were, quote unquote, freed from being enslaved people, families would put ads in newspapers to try to find one another and reassemble. And when you separate a family, you are removing the bedrock from children as well, who then are developing into the world. And so it is intentional and it hasn't ever ended. It's a part of the American landscape. And Black women are the ones nine times out of 10 who are keeping the family together, are paying the rent, are trying to put food on the table. And I mean, there's many, many things that you can say about that, but it's by design. And so you can't really talk about incarceration without talking about the family and without talking about the Black woman. I think that that's crucial. And again, I think that this goes back into this question around facts and information and what it is that we think we need in order for something to be valid to create change around. And I think that the numbers and the statistics are critical, but they have to be in unison and in conversation with the human experience as well. Yeah, I really loved, I heard you express facts versus effects. And I thought that was such a beautiful way of framing it, that it's not just the figures, it's also how this becomes folded into every single second of somebody's life. 
That's right. Yeah, we have to understand. I mean, I think the only way most of us actually understand what facts are is to understand the effects of them. It's the same thing with global warming and environmentalism. What does any of it mean unless you understand how that's going to affect you and your life? There's a scene that I thought was, aside from the obvious, the moment that, and also spoiler here for anyone who hasn't seen the film, but the moment that Robert is released is just a huge emotional crescendo. But another scene that I thought, oh my God, said so much was when Fox was watching Mary J. Blige accept an award, like a BET award. And Blige is saying about being a Black woman that she was raised by a Black woman who rocks, you know, who's just awesome, and realizing that she is also a Black woman who rocks. And you hold a very tight shot on Fox there. And I thought, oh my God, there's so much going on here. And I'm curious in the context of the voices of Black women, and also the notion of like all the history that came into what Mary J. Blige was saying in that moment, but also like the present that Fox was experiencing. I was wondering how you thought about it, like how you thought about Fox watching Mary J. Blige having this ownership over narrative and also self-respect and confidence. I was wondering how you thought about that scene. I mean, I just remember when we were shooting that day and being like, we need to shoot the screen too, because this shit is just <laughs> like really important. And it's important because some of us are famous and in the world, and some of us are famous and in the world, but in a different kind of way, you know what I mean? Just in our everyday. And I think for me, that was about bridging the gap, you know what I mean? That Mary is talking about something that is universal. And Fox understands that and sees that. Fox is also Mary. Mary is Fox, you know what I mean? In many ways. It was just a full circle moment. And it was one of those things that I think as a Black woman filmmaker, there are some things that I don't feel like I need to sort of explain. You can just see them and you get it, you know what I mean? Some people may not understand it and that's okay. But I think that's the beauty of diversity in the world is that it, this whole idea of having diversity be a part of the conversation in a cinematic space is not interesting when you think about it from a sort of it needing to be politically correct. What's interesting is that it actually allows for there to be more perspectives that are seen and that are understood. And that is why we make films. The advent of making film is for us to understand ourselves and to understand other people. That's the whole purpose of it. And that's been the purpose from the beginning, you know? And so there's no way we can actually do that and achieve that as a species unless we open up the way in which we're using the devices. It also seems important in what you documented here the notion that hope is just getting from day to day and keeping this fight up from day to day, that it's not big, that it's not like a loud thing. It's the quiet thing you do every single day. And representing that as a kind of hope is really important. And you've also spoken about the discourse around whether beauty and journalism and documentary can bring about action in the same way that representing trauma can. You mentioned in an interview with BAM that you believe beauty absolutely can move people to act. And how does that belief inform your work as a filmmaker? How does that come out in these films? I think it comes out in the films. I think it's the only way I know how to make anything, you know? I mean, it's a funny thing because I just think when you make things in the world, you have these cerebral rationalizations and there's a certain level of logic that's connected to why you're making something, right? But then you're also just kind of guided by something that can't necessarily be 
explained or justified until it's materialized in the world. And I think for me, I feel like I'm just channeling something. I feel like I'm guided by something in terms of where my eye is. And beauty is something that I have always been enticed by. It's inspired me. And so I feel like I'm just sharing something. I guess the act itself of making the film, this idea that seeing is believing, believing is what creates action, is, I guess, very simply how I think about what I'm doing. Now, what is it that we want people to believe? What is it that then they theoretically could take action on? That boils down to intention, and that intention always changes from one project to the next. With Alone and with Time, the intention was to show that, again, as you said, to show the effects of the facts to show what is behind the numbers? How do we create evidence? How do we create justice to the people that are affected by the system? Well, it's by showing it, by being able to see it, because part of the weaponry of the prison industrial complex is the lack of visibility, is the invisibility of 2.3 million people. So it's kind of in my mind, very simple of just saying, let's start with what we can see, you know? And I think, Molly, like to your point, another way of getting at this, which is important, is I wasn't around for the Vietnam War, but I know that it was one of the first times in history that people, everyday people on their TVs were able to see war and see what was happening. And so if we understand that, when we really think about that, then it clarifies the role of making films and of taking pictures and developing a library of images for things that can counteract the sort of overarching agenda of invisibility. And I think also it's important to have this work so that the imagery we have around incarceration and policing is not just the cell phone footage, which has been so impactful of police, terror, and abuse. But you sort of added to the library so that we're balancing. Like, it's all important, obviously, this summer. The protests that we saw may not have happened without that footage, but to me— Getting back to the point about beauty, it's really important that isn't the only archive in the library, that there is this representation of something beautiful and loving and familial to sort of counterbalance that. Is this a subject that you think you'll keep exploring? I'm curious what your next steps is. There's a rumor that there's a docuseries for Netflix about tennis star Naomi Osaka that you might also be working on. So I'm curious what comes next for you. (laughs) Um, yeah, yeah. I'm, we're finishing that up right now. And actually it's funny because I was thinking about the Mary J. Blige moment and Fox and I stopped myself from saying it, but it did immediately kind of elicit this moment that we've been talking about quite a bit on this other project about that moment between Serena and Naomi at the 2018 US Open, which the media really made about them kind of pitting themselves against one another. But in my mind, it was so much about Serena standing up for both of them and showing Naomi how to move through the responsibility that she was about to embark on in that industry, sort of sisterhood in public view. I think that that moment in time is very much in conversation with that moment between Serena and Naomi. It's been great being able to work with her. She's brilliant and is going to continue to do amazing things in the world and is asking herself 
I think, the same questions that the world is asking itself, and she might even be a little further ahead than the world. (laughs) I cannot wait to see it. And I can't wait to see that, how you represent that interaction, because it definitely was represented so differently in the moment. It's helpful to think that there was a lot more going on there. When does that come out? I don't know. I'm not sure. <laughs> that one's Someday off the record. Time. I have no idea. <laughs> soon? Sometime in time. It'll be next year. Yeah. Or this year. We're in 2021. It'll be later this year. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to see it. Got it. Thank you so much for joining us. It was such a pleasure. I've never had so much fun prepping for an interview. Oh my God. In, you're so like, you've done so much research and I'm so honored and proud. And I'm like, fuck, that's what I said. You said it. <laughs> and uh, now I have to think of something cool to say. And, uh, yeah, anyway, you're you're awesome. And I thanks for thank you. I really feel honored to be talking to you guys. We feel the same way. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcast and rate and review the show. We so appreciate the feedback. We'll be back next week with another conversation centering racial justice. But we also encourage you to check out our archive for similar conversations on race, history, and reconciliation. Until next week, stay strong.